one minute to abandon ship. The ship will automatically destruct in T minus one minute. I will win the crowd. I will give them something they've never seen before. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Hold on to your butts. Now, what shall we talk about? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to the Duel of the Greats, Season 1, Episode 15. Folks, this is where it all goes down. This is the week we have Steven Spielberg with seven victories. We have Ridley Scott with seven victories. They're all knotted up, and this will be the final week where the decision is made. So we're going to switch up the format a bit in order to facilitate this great competition. We're calling this week, We Rest Our Case Week. So, Steven the Ridley Scott guy, he's going to have his movie that he thinks embodies what makes Ridley Scott the best director. He's going to present his case. That movie is Kingdom of Heaven, director's cut. And I, the quote-unquote Steven Spielberg guy, will be presenting a movie that I think embodies why Steven Spielberg is the best director, and that movie is War of the Worlds. Now, oddly enough, both these movies came out in the year 2005. So... um, you know, we were both, in, all of us were in our into our adulthood. Oh, and by the way, once we present our case, Nate, of course, will be judge, jury, and executioner here and making the decision on who, who presented the best case and who will ultimately win season one of Duel of the Greats. Now, before we get into that, we'll talk a little bit, uh, you know, the, the, before we get into the new format here, or special format for this episode, we'll talk a little bit about what our, uh, like we normally do, I mean, what our first experiences were with these movies. So I can go first and just say my first experience with War of the Worlds, saw the movie in theaters. Um, you know, I've talked before, obviously, how big of a Spielberg fan I am. And that I've talked before about how the 93 to 2005 era of Spielberg was probably my favorite of his. And it ended kind of with, with War of the Worlds. So absolutely love this movie. Went to the theater and saw it. Loved it when I saw it. Bought it immediately when it came out on DVD. I've watched it a bunch of times since. It's just such a phenomenal movie, and I will explain later why I think it just perfectly encapsulates Spielberg. Um, but as for Kingdom of Heaven, director's cut, my first experience with that movie was roughly 72 hours ago, and uh, I had not seen it. It was it was a movie that I obviously I was aware of, I, even though I I'm the Spielberg guy. I still do like Ridley Scott, of course, and and he's a director that I pay attention to. If his name's attached, my ears are going to perk up a little bit. And, you know, especially at the time, right. There were so like Orlando Bloom, right. He, he really just had a lock down tight in this era, this two thousands era of the sort of fantasy epic sword and sandal thing, right? Like you want parts of the Caribbean, boom, to get you Orlando Bloom. You want uh, Lord of the Rings, give Orlando Bloom a call. You want Kingdom of Heaven? You know, you want all that he was just in that whole era. He just dominated Troy. You want to? You want? You want somebody to go across Brad Pitt? Let's get Orlando Bloom a call, right? I mean, that was his thing, right? And he made the best of it. Uh, but you know, Kingdom of Heaven came out, and the reviews were less than stellar. And so I think I just I passed on it because I it wasn't 
at the time I just didn't didn't feel the need to see it and it was something where I was like I'll probably check it out when it comes on video or something never quite got around to it director's cut happens and it is you know a much different movie and I actually talked to Steve today about a lot of the differences because I because I never see the theatrical cut and I've only seen the director's cut now I was like I wonder what they could have possibly cut out of this and Steve kind of explained to me a lot of the cut and I can definitely see why it's I mean just some of the stuff that he explained to me it sounds like a completely different movie and what a horrible, terrible decision some of these cuts were. And so I can understand why there would have been such a, a push from Ridley, Ridley Scott to, to release the director's cut. So I'm glad that he did because I enjoyed my experience with it. And uh, it stars Eva Green. I'm a big fan of her. I, didn't, I totally did not realize she was in this movie. And it just it bumped up five notches immediately before I even seen it once I saw that she was in it because she's one of my favorite actresses. And um yeah, really good cast. I mean, besides her, of course, Brendan Gleeson. I didn't know he was in it either. I love him. Uh, David Thewlis, I thought was awesome in it, and um, he he's a fun actor. He's kind of he's one of those that guys, but uh, he's uh, he really showed up and and did well. I thought obviously Liam Neeson in a smaller role, but he's always Liam Neeson. So anyway, those are my experiences. What about you guys? Uh, very similar to yours, I saw War of the Worlds in theaters. I actually saw it with Steve. Um, I remember us uh, seeing it and uh, standing outside the movie theater afterward and talking about like what we would do if there was actually an alien invasion. Um, uh, God rest the souls of our grandparents yeah, who were alive we at the time. Yeah, I think we decided we'd have to give Grandma and Grandpa a pass and, and just get out <laughs> and save the, <laughs> the rest of the family. We kind of determined that's probably what they would want. Yeah, we determined that's probably what they would want. So I, I remember the marketing campaign for War of the Worlds was really great. Uh, they had some really great trailers and some really great TV spots that were uh, very exciting and kind of did a very good job of not really showing the uh, the tripod aliens. Um, so it was scary, it was effective, but it didn't really show a lot in the trailers, and I, I really remember the marketing campaign being great. I'd never seen Kingdom of Heaven. Um, just one of those movies that I had never gotten around to seeing. I've heard for years that the director's cut is just a masterpiece. Steve himself uh, has said that to me many times. And I was uh, kind of actually sort of excited when Steve picked this as his uh, closing argument film because I did want to watch it, and it gave me a great excuse to sit down and watch the director's cut, which I did uh, over the last week. So those are my experiences. What about you, Steve? Well, first of all, I could have sworn we saw Kingdom of Heaven together in the theaters. But, you know, I'll trust your I memory. Never, I, I had never seen it. Never I remember seen it. being very excited about it coming out because they kept showing in trailers one of the shots of the trebuchet going, firing towards the city, and the camera's down, like, in the bucket of the trebuchet, and I was just, like, so excited about this. The movie, I saw it when it came out, and I think I was fairly pleased with it, but mostly whelmed by the plot and everything, you know, all the things that are corrected in the director's cut. But I loved the action and the, the, the historical epicness of it, which were things that we weren't getting a lot of at that point. And Ridley Scott really, really served up a lot of those things for a history buff in the mid-2000s. So I was all about that movie when it came out. War of the Worlds, like you said, we saw it together, and I remember liking it. Um... I don't think it was, I don't remember being like, my, my mind was blown, like this is the best movie ever, or even being disappointed. I remember just thinking this is a solid, really solid Steven Spielberg movie. I, I have lots of thoughts about, obviously, both of them, but 
uh, both of them and about the time in which they came out in American and international society and politics and all the fun things that were happening in 2005. And I think it's very interesting how they've aged uh, in two different ways, but I'll save all that for, for later if we don't discuss it in our presentations here. Speaking of which, we will, the, the format, as I mentioned, be a little bit different for this special episode. So the way we're going to do it, as we rest our case, as you normally would before you say we rest our case, you would present your case, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So Steve and I have prepared some, some opening statements for why, we think, and for why we think these movies encapsulate what makes the directors so great and, and why they should be the best, and some, some evidence from the movies themselves. Those will be presented to Nate individually, of course, and then Nate maybe have some follow-up questions. We may have some cross-examination, a little bit of discussion, and then Nate will ultimately make the decision. So before we started recording, we flipped a virtual coin, and I won, and I deferred to Steve. So Steve gets to start us off. Steve, tell us why Kingdom of Heaven makes Ridley Scott. It's really deferring if there's no choice to make. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Why, Why does Kingdom of Heaven mean that Ridley Scott should win season one here? I'll tell you why. This is a film in which a good man sheds blood. An evil man wears a crown. Paupers become noblemen and kings turn to dust. This is an anti-war film hidden beneath 1,000 fluttering martial banners. It's a film about the sanctity of life that is men put to death. This film contains a humanist message clothed in religious garb. It's a film where redemption is found not in God's word, but in man's deeds. It is quite simply Ridley Scott's masterpiece. So, here we go. What have we talked about this entire time with Ridley Scott? There's two Ridleys, right? There's the Big Ideas Ridley, and then there's the Beautiful Vistas Ridley, we'll call him. Now, sometimes those sort of overlap. There's amazing, gorgeous shots of Blade Runner, uh, Alien, Prometheus, and then, of course, there are lots of, lots of big ideas in all of those movies as well. But this movie is his fusion of the two. So the big ideas, Exhibit A, can be boiled down to three words. Agency, action, and apostasy. Okay? Agency. Duty versus free will. This movie is all about the tension of duty and free will and what the choice, what that means to being human. There are two lines that sum up, I think, the entire movie, at least when it comes to this theme, but really is the, the crux of the film. King Baldwin, played by Edward Norton, says to Balian at one point, played by Orlando Bloom, remember that whosoever, excuse me, howsoever you are played, or by whom, your soul is in your keeping alone. Even though those that presume to play you, be they kings or men of power, when you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus, or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. Remember that. So that's the, the biggest point right there. You have you are responsible for your own actions, and then it's it's even more nicely summed up by the hospitaler who is that's David Tewlis character. You you mentioned him. He's like you said. I think he does a fantastic job in this movie. He doesn't have a name. He's just hospitaler, which was a type of type of crusader, just like Templar. At one point, he tells Balian, and goodness, what God desires is here, points to Balian's head, and here, points to his heart. He says, and by what you decide to do every day, you will be a good man, or not. And that is the crux right here of, really, the the point of the entire movie. 
You have free will. Humans have free will. There is no predestination. There is no predisposition. It's what you do minute to minute that makes you the person you are. So all of this wrapped up in something about religion and, you know, uh, Christianity versus Islam and these two warring factions that people are literally slicing each other up for words on paper when really it's, it's what's the decision that these people are making that is driving them. It's really, that's what makes them who they are. So you can, you can outsource the decision-making to, it doesn't have to just be religion. It could be any sort of political thought or um, any sort of worldview, but you can defer. <laughs> see, see, Jeff, you did it. You can defer your responsibility and your obligations to make your own decisions, but ultimately you're the one responsible for it. Whether you believe you answer to God or whomever, it's ultimately you who has to own that. So um, that's one of the big ideas. Agency. Who has the power to choose? You do. Humans do. Every person has to make that choice for himself. Now, a lot of the tension in the movie comes from the tension between that and duty to others. Balian has duty to the king um, once he takes over his, his state at Ibelin. He has duty to his father once he decides to go with him, Liam Neeson. And so a lot of the, the drama in the film, to me, comes from that tension. And I think it's played wonderfully. Pardon me. And ultimately, I think Balian passes the test of whether, you know, is he going to choose for himself or not? And that leads into the second part of this, this big idea, um, action. The, the test that he's finally put to is, you know, the people of the city, does he save them uh, when offered this, this truce by Saladin at the end? Or does he continue to, to, to defend the rocks and the rubble? Which arguably is, you know, that's his, his charge, defend the city. Now, granted, he's been given really good advice by other characters throughout the movie, including the king who theoretically gave him the order, you know, defend the people, really. But he's facing a lot of pressure from history and outside sources, including the, the awful uh, bishop there in town to, you know, this is these are Christianity's holy sites. We need to defend them. But he he makes his own choice and he does the right thing. What is the right thing? And that's the second choice here. Um, or excuse me, second big idea, sin and redemption and the idea of kind of what is our purpose in life? Is it, you know, um, living a good life? Is it living according to scripture? Is it defending, you know, our homes, defending other people? Is it helping our, our lords or be they earthly or, um, heavenly? Really? I think it, it's hit over and over and over again in this film. The, the purpose, really, for all of us, is to try to make the world a better place, do better for everybody else. He literally, Balian literally has a writing in his, his um, blacksmith job. What is a man who does not make the world a better place? He has that written. So he literally travels halfway around the world to go for this, to go for this idea of forgiveness, for this supposed sin that his wife committed by committing suicide in her, in her grief when her, her child died. And also forgiveness for himself for killing his brother priest, who that's one of the huge things that's not in the theatrical cut, by the way. They're not brothers. That's not discussed anywhere. So that, that's a pretty huge part of the motivation that is that is lacking in the theatrical cut. And you can see why people would be upset uh, or, or not find it as um, impactful. But anyway, he travels halfway around the world looking for forgiveness when the answer was right there above him. Make the world a better place. Trying to do better. So he even says that out loud um, when he's in Ibelin later. Who would I be if I did not try to make it better? He's talking about 
his estate, you know, making um, canals and wells for his people. But really, he's talking about the world. He just doesn't know it. So. Later on, a character says, holiness is defending those that cannot defend themselves. Um, and then, <clears throat> really, it's not just... I've kind of conflated these two ideas, but I, it was it was tough to kind of come up with the best way to say this. It's not only uh, doing good, but it's doing. It's the action of just literally making a choice. There's a couple points where this theme is hammered home that one of the worst things you can do is nothing. So, you know, that speaks to our own times, right? What is it? Or the, what's that cliche, you know, the only thing that evil requires is for good men to do nothing. These are really, really big ideas. That's not said in the movie, of course, but there um, are certain instances. For instance, King Baldwin, Edward Norton, says at one point he's playing chess with Bailey, and he says, the whole world is in chess. Any move can be the death of you, but do anything remain, ex <clears throat> excuse me, do anything except remain where you started and you can't be sure of your end. That's true, but you also have to play. You have to move. Any choice is better than nothing. So, the third of the big ideas, apostasy. The hypocrisy of organized religion. Some of this is kind of, not kind of, it's really on the nose. Um, so I could see where people think it's it's hitting the viewer over the head, but I don't know. I <laughs> Stepping back a bit, I think part of the reason I like this movie so much is because it speaks a lot to my personal beliefs. And this is a big one of them that, People can believe what they want spiritually, but religion is often, I think, a net negative. And um, this movie illustrates that a lot. And then going back to the, the free will thing, one of my favorite quotes of all time from literature is from East of Eden. And uh, I won't give you the whole thing, but basically a character tells another one, <clears throat> excuse me, about a Hebrew word, Tim Shell, which means uh, thou mayest where it's translated as thou mayest, as in a person may do something. Whereas in the, the King James Version or the New Standard Version, um, it's a, either a command, thou shall, or, um, I can't remember, I should know this. Uh, the other one is, um, it, it's possible to do something. Um, whereas in the Hebrew translation, thou mayest, it puts all the agency back on the person. And that's ultimately, I think, what it means to be a human. And... I want to say a man, but that's obviously a man or a woman or neither. What it means to be a human person living in this world is having the decision day to day, moment to moment, and what you do with it that matters. So going back to the third big idea, apostasy, there's some just great lines that I'll just hit you with. Again, they're kind of hitting, it over, uh, hitting folks over the head, but one of the characters says, the law can, only, can go too far. I ask myself, would Jesus do it thusly? There's so much done in Christendom of which Christ would be incapable. Another said, by the word of religion, I have seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God. I've seen too much religion in the eyes of too many murderers. I mean, what a line. This movie is filled with things like that. Granted, really, Scott didn't write it, but he got this thing made. He got these words put in there. He made the entire melange of the movie. See, it's French because they were French Templars. Anyway, um, he got the entire movie and, and he puts all this in context. And I, I just think they just nailed it. So that's Exhibit A, Big Ideas. Exhibit B, Beautiful Vistas and World Building. This is an epic movie. In fact, on the director's cut, they did a roadshow version, which I really wish I could find. Apparently there's a DVD version of it, but I looked, maybe it didn't look hard enough, but it actually had a, an intermission just like an old school Lawrence of Arabia or Spartacus or something like that. I really wish I could have seen that, but 
the shots in this movie are just amazing. A lot of the things Ridley Scott we talk about is famous for with his really artistic works is just beautiful framing of shots, things, all that. We have all that here. Use of color. Um, the the scenes that stand out to me are the chase scene. Excuse me. Not really a chase. Um, Balian is riding after Liam Neeson to catch up to to him and his his fellow um, crusaders at the beginning. And it's all blue. The everything's blue and real dark, and and there's snow coming down, and it just it you can feel this oppressiveness that is on Balian. The re, you know he's fleeing um, because of the oppressive nature of his his current existence, and of course the the law <laughs> that is going to be oppressing him if he stays. And as they slowly get towards the Holy Land, everything of course brightens up. It gets brighter and, and more much more beautiful. Um, I just I love that that visual voyage that we take there. And then a lot of this is just, I just wrote down bits and pieces that I thought were just such beautiful shots. The shots of Messina in Italy when they're getting ready to leave, of the ships out in the ocean. Just gorgeous. Um, there's a scene where Guy, Guy de la Sion, the, the uh, Templar, he's in one of the battles, and the way the blood splashes up on his white uh, frock is just, I mean, some of this is just stuff that I think a lot of movie makers could do. But it, when you put it all together, it's just it's got that that chef's kiss of Ridliness, and the stuff that he does better than anybody else right now is the big scale stuff. The scene in the siege when we're looking out at Saladin's army and it's night and you can't see anything, and then the entire horizon just lights up with fire as the trebuchets come in, uh, shots sorry, come man. in. I want to interject because that's the yeah. I was gonna make sure you absolutely mention that shot. That was just, like it is absolutely incredible. <laughs> I, might, right. I might be hurting. I might be hurting my own case to say that I was just wowed at that. Right? Yeah, it is absolutely. It is absolutely, it is absolutely stunning piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I've I'm seen this movie that. so many times, and I let it my notes just say "holy shit" again. <laughs> it's just incredible. Um, the when they're the siege towers, the, they built three real siege towers, full size, and they literally pulled them down and then burned them. So that's all physical work. Um, they, they built a full-scale mock-up of the wall and all that. That's all physical as well. Of course, it's not in Ring of City, but there's just there's nobody else making movies quite like this on this scale. And it's got me excited for Napoleon, but that, we'll, we'll save that. Uh, another thing I like about it is just um, in the visual and world-building, he does a lot of showing and not telling here, which is kind of one of those basic rules of making movies, right? But just uh, a, a quick example of that that I loved. They... Um, when they're teaching, when Liam Neeson is teaching um, Bailey and has a sword fight, and he, he he shows he does a little thing and, and he almost hits him in the face with the hilt of the sword. And he's like, not every part of a, or excuse me, the blade isn't the only part of the sword that can kill. We see in the fight right after that, Bailey and kills a guy with the sword hilt. And it's like, ah, he's a quick learner. We know this. Um, th this is, you know, it's helping tell a story about the character via the action instead of just having a line or something like that. We're like, I learned this from my father or something silly like that. Exhibit C was the actors and the acting. I'm sure we'll talk about this in some of the questions. So I'm not going to go in too deep, except like Jeff said earlier, Eva Green is awesome in this. The entire subplot of her and her son is just non-existent in the theatrical cut. She, the grief that's on her face at the end of this movie, it, you don't know where it comes from in the theatrical cut, except for the fact that, well, her brother died and the city fell, but 
you know, it, it, the fact that she killed her own damn son to spare him a, a horrible fate is just, it's totally lost on the viewer. So one of the, that's one of those things where you have to see the director's cuts fully appreciate her acting there. But there's just some fantastic work by a lot of fantastic people. So to sum it up, it's Ridley Scott at his best. Big ideas, beautiful vistas, the fusion of which he just nails. No other current filmmaker could make this movie the way he made it and have it be so good. So, in close, gentlemen, I submit to you that this film tells a timeless tale about what it means to be a human in this confusing, brutal world, and it does so in such a lush, sweeping visual manner that no other director could have risen to the task. Nate, as you make your decision for which film wins this matchup, I want you to consider Balian's words after sparing the defeated Guy de Lucien. Oh my god. We are, all of us, what we do. Okay. Um... <laughs> that's, an that's an incredible statement. One thing that I will add that I liked about just my general thought about this movie that I think you're actually underselling about this movie. And I'm going to talk about what I like and don't like about both these movies. Um, Edward Norton as the Leper King. This is maybe yeah. immediately my favorite Edward Norton performance. I, I'm ashamed that I've never seen this. It's one of my favorite acting performances that I've seen in, in recent memory. I mean, I think it's one of the best acting performances of the last 30 years. And what is so incredible about it is that he's obviously completely covered head to toe. So all you're hearing really is his voice. Everything is covered. He's wearing a mask. Yet, when we think of movie characters that wear masks, we think of like Michael Myers. You think of like a horror film character. And the whole reason that they put a mask on a person like that in a horror film is like so that there's like a lack of emotion. The emotion that Edward Norton is able to conjure in this movie through the softness of his voice and the delivery of this script and just these very subtle head kind of movements yes, to the side. Yes. It is I mean, it is a remarkable acting performance. And I, it is probably my favorite thing of the movie. Um, one thing that I will ask you, Steve, is um, do you think that this movie – I think this – generally, I think that this movie, part as I watch it now, several years later, I think that this movie maybe did not do very well for the time that it was released in. Can you maybe speak a little bit to its commentary on the war in Iraq and the war, uh, the war on terror and what this meant in an immediate post 9-11 world? So that was one of the big reasons that I, I think you're exactly right. It's one of the big reasons it failed. And critical reception, I think, kind of reflected that. I was looking back at various um, uh, critical bits and you know blurbs, and a lot of them were talking about this. One big uh, complaint from from a certain aspect of it was, oh well, its humanization of Saladin is it helps the terrorists. Literally, was <laughs> something basically that people said, <laughs> because it shows Saladin as this good, you know, basically not a savage, which is, is first of all crazy, uh, you know, just on its face. But second of all, it, it does humanize him a little bit. Like Saladin wasn't a he was a very very devout believer in jihad. And um, he killed a lot of Christians, so like he isn't the he isn't a saint by by any means. But on the other hand, he isn't a bloodthirsty savage for God's sakes. And uh, then a lot of people said, on the other hand, it it paints the Christians as too bloodthirsty, 
And, and I'm like, did you guys not see the whole thing about the actual kingdom of Jerusalem and literally the main goddamn character, including um, the, the king, Edward Norton, you know, play their whole thing is not being bloodthirsty. Like, what are you guys watching? It's not just Guy de Lucien and Reynaldo show whatever, you know, slaughtering Muslims in the desert. But anyway, I, so I mentioned this at the very beginning, and I think you're, you've hit on something. I think this movie works better removed from the time in which it was made. We were in the throes of a brutal war. I mean, 2005, that was right when things were turning real sour, right? Fallujah happened in 2004. The insurgency was ramping way up. The surge hadn't happened yet in 2006, 2007, when we kind of got a handle on it. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of deaths and vicious, horrible things were happening right then. And I think this was just dropping a... <laughs> <laughs> dropping a bomb is what I was going to say. It's probably not the most tactful use, but, you know, dropping something about the, the conflict between Christians and Muslims in the Holy Land right in the middle of that, which just, it was never going to be, no one was ever going to look at this with a, a you know, a, a reasonable, um, clear set of eyes. It was always going to be inflamed one way or another, people's passions. I think looking at it now, 20, God damn, almost 20 years later, while we still have a lot of the same underlying issues, of course, we're not currently in a massive land war in the Middle East. And it you can look at it with some more perspective. I, I think it looks better, or excuse me, it works better when you just completely divorce it from the war on terror. It's a story that is very much set in the Middle East, in the, the Holy Land, that is obviously integral to it. But the themes and things that it, tell, that it tells, it, it doesn't have to be. You know, it. I think it still works absent that it just ha so happens that Jerusalem is in the Holy land was this perfect melting pot of three major religions. And it, that led to such dramatic, um, you know, clashes of culture. And so it, those, it's a perfect place to tell a story like this. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I think you're spot on. Uh, there's a particular line that I think is a great line where, uh, they're coming to terms. They've had the siege on, Jeru on Jerusalem. And they go out and they meet and they kind of agree on these terms. And they say, like, we're going to let everyone, we're taking Jerusalem, but we're going to let everyone leave peacefully. And he says, when Christians took this city a hundred years ago, not a, not a single Muslim woman or child was spared. And Saladin says, I am not those men. And I think that is such a great line that I cannot tell you how poorly that landed in 2005. Right. Um, just, just because there was this really, I mean, frankly, anti-Islamic sentiment yeah. that, that, that existed at that time in the, the, the socio-political world of, of the United States. And I think it's a great line. And I think that, that it's an interesting sentiment and it shows kind of this interesting historical figure who was uh, kind of a conflicted person. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that divorcing it from that is easy to do now, and I think it is part of the reason that I loved it. Um, but it's obvious, and I've, again, like, uh, like Jeff, I've not seen, I've not even seen the theatrical cut, so I've seen, like, the definitive version of this film. I can't imagine how some of this stuff landed without a lot of this context uh, in theaters at the time. Yeah. You know, the, the best, well, not the best thing, but one of the great things about that Saladin line also is, at least to me, it reinforces Exhibit A, theme number one, agency. It's his choice. He gets to make it. 
you know, he's got this weight of history and culture and tradition and religion, arguably, if he, you know, believes a certain aspect of uh, jihad, you know, whatever. But he gets to make that choice. It's the decision he makes in that moment. I have one final question for you, Steve, before I move over to, to Jeff. There's a theme, a thematic thing that they do in this movie that I am probably just not smart enough to understand, but it's one of those things that I know I like it, and I know that if <laughs> I were smart enough to understand it. There's this thing where um, there's this repeated refrain where someone will present themselves with a title, and then another person will come back with another title. Um, and the very conclusion of that is at the very end when he says, I am the blacksmith, and uh, Richard Lionheart says, and I am the king of England. Is there something to that that I'm missing um, about like how they're always responding to each other with titles um, or like there's kind of this gentleman's battle with titles um, and you may not have an answer to that. I just, I know that that was kind of the thematic thing that they did a lot in the movie. So I don't have an answer for you overall for the example you use. Here's how I interpreted that. The Richard really wants Balian, the defender of Jerusalem. He wants this man that he came to search for. And it, it's Balian doubling down and saying, you know, that's not me anymore. You know, I am just the blacksmith. And the 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 response to me is just being like, well, you son of a bitch, do you know who I am? I, I need this other guy. Are you sure you don't want to change your, your tone? That's how I took that whole part. I, I don't, I can't speak to the rest of it. Um, do you have another example of it, or is that just the, the biggest one that stands out? There's a thing in the desert when they, um, he fights, uh, he has sort of the sword fight with the guy in the desert, and they do it right. there too. Um, now, obviously, that we learn later that that's a bit of trickery that the guy mm-hmm. he thinks he's thinks he has killed the master and left right. the servant to live, when in fact he has killed the servant and left the master to live. Um, and that sort of turns around there uh, on him uh, later to to his benefit later in the right. movie. Um, but okay, I was just I was so, just curious about that. That just brings up one other last point. I'll I'll concede this is the one complaint I have about this movie. Balian, for all, <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot of faults really, despite being such a tortured guy looking for redemption. At every step, he seems to make the right decision—a virtuous decision, a good decision. You just made a good example there. You know, he, he then lets the, what he thinks the servant, uh, lets him go once he gets to Jerusalem. And obviously that comes back to his benefit when he, he, his life is spared by the same man. But you know, that it's just one of many things where he's so virtuous and I would like to see a little bit more of a character arc for our main protagonist. Um, obviously he kills a priest at the beginning, but but I guess I don't know if there's ever a but that salvages that. But, you know, given the circumstances that we've seen, especially in the director's cut, it's a little bit more understandable. So that's one of the things that's not shown at all in the, the- theatrical. They're not brothers. Oh, yeah, I said that already. But that he just like basically snaps all of a sudden when Michael Shannon's character says, "What though what she'll do without a head, I know not. Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen. Thank you. Michael Shannon is not him. He's in shape. Although water, also would have been that. good in that role. Yes. But I, I have a cross-examination question, if I will. One question. Uh-oh. So, um, absolutely amazing cast in this movie, right? You got Edward Norton. You already talked about his how great he was in his role. Jeremy Irons was awesome. David yep. was fantastic. Liam Neeson's amazing. Brennan Gleeson, um, you know, Eva Green we talked about. But for 
I I like Orlando Bloom, okay? But I will say I think he might have been the weakest actor. I don't think he might have been. I think he was the weakest actor in the movie. And I'm I'm curious from your standpoint, do you think that um, number one do you agree but then number two do you think that it was the right decision for Ridley Scott to have him in that role and do you think it's more a reflection on Orlando Bloom the way it came out or do you think that 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 was maybe a failure on Ridley Scott's part well I reject the premise that you're that you're laying in the in your final questions there that it was necessarily a bad performance I think it was bad it was the weakest okay well, fair, but I guess who would you have rather cast that was available? I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to go back and think about it from 2005, sure, but, but, but if you, um, <clears throat> I don't know. Well, a lot would, of the complaints would, I've seen, would you and McGregor have been better in that role? A lot of the complaints I've seen have been that his character is wooden in this, you know, somewhat, somehow lacks, excuse me, emotion or range. And I think. I think he's just, he's doing it. He's portraying it, a guy that's stoic and, and wrestling with a lot of internal, um, internal distress. And, but he's trying to keep it together on the outside, uh, for these ideas of masculinity and knighthood and all, you know, all these things that, that he thinks are important. Maybe I'm reading too much into his performance, but I actually kind of like his performance in this. I, I, I also think that he's kind of he's a vessel for us to to see this world as well and not necessarily you know again he doesn't go through a huge transition I mean arguably he does he, he's a pauper that becomes a nobleman but he doesn't go on a huge personal journey really he he thinks he's looking for redemption and he finds it by making the right decisions at the end but but ultimately I I, I don't know that his journey necessarily is is the most important part of it as, as opposed to like everything that happens to him. So, so the fact that he may be the weakest link is not necessarily a huge flaw to me in this movie. Yeah. Cause I think it, one of the things that was interesting to me talking about the context of Orlando Bloom in this, like we talked about all the movies that he was in, in this time frame, all three parts of the Caribbean movies, all three Lord of the Rings movies um, right around this time. But this even Troy as well. This was the first movie that he carried, right? Because Johnny Depp and Jack Sparrow was carrying those parts of the Caribbean movies, right? He was just one of a huge cast in Lord of the Rings. And, you know, in Troy, that was a Brad Pitt movie. And and I think Troy came after this, but but still another um another example. But this was the like kind of the, the first of all those movies where he was the guy. And so that, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then it, it um, I didn't know if it was maybe too much or if you thought that was like a, a, a specific choice. So I have a question for you because a lot of, you know, this movie gets compared to Gladiator. Would this movie have been better with Russell Crowe as that character? I, I almost think no. I, I will, I will I say it is, it is helpful. I mean, I, I'm guessing, I'm certainly guessing that Orlando Orlando Bloom is younger than Russell Crowe. I know they're both obviously much older now. There's something about the younger, I, regardless of who it is, I think it's probably youthfulness. someone. Yeah, the youthfulness is helpful to the overall performance. So, so I, I agree with you, Steve, that I don't know if it would have been uh, better with someone like Russell Crowe. I will also agree with Jeff, though. I do feel like, not that Orlando Bloom's performance is bad in this movie, 
I think that he is, perhaps by no fault of his own, he is outclassed by some masterful performances in in, in this film, um, which is you know I you know he's he's being asked to do a lot and his it's a very difficult performance and he kind of has to go through this sort of weird sort of emotional arc, um, but I. I I think he's good in this movie. I can't think of a person that would necessarily immediately would have been better. It's funny. The person I, I just thought of was Leonardo DiCaprio was the first one that I thought of the youthfulness. Um, that's like Christian Bale, right? He said, uh, you know, every role I get is because Leonardo DiCaprio passed on it. Yeah. As, as we were just talking about this, I thought, uh, I think Guy Pierce, 2005 Guy Pierce would have been fantastic in this role. Yeah. So, I mean, we can go, I mean, we can, you know, pose all day, but I, I think that I think it's I think it's a great movie as is. I I agree with Jeff that that was probably my one small complaint is that I just don't think Orlando Bloom is the is the is the caliber of actor that ca- can carry a movie like this, particularly the director's cut, which is a really really long movie. Now he's he's really lifted and crutched by these great performances around him, but. It's hard to watch him for like three and a half hours really carry the, the emotional arc of the movie. So then I guess the ultimate question then to, to Steve, if you're talking about Ridley Scott here, do you think Ridley Scott got the most out of him? Like, have you seen, what have we seen from Orlando Bloom that could possibly make you think that there was more that a different director could have gotten? Or do you think? Because I don't know the answer. Well, talking about all those movies that he was in around the same time, I think this is probably, I mean, it's all so subjective, but I feel like this is his best performance of those. Pirates of the Caribbean, he's he's a bit more outgoing, given more to do, of course, but I think, I think he's... I th- yeah, I think what helps him in Pirates is he gets to play a little bit on a comedic sensibility. Yes. He does it's not, it's he goofier. Does not get, it's a goofier. Yeah, he does, he does not get to do that here. Yeah. This, there's no, no joy in this movie, really. <laughs> but that doesn't also... You know, there's some movies like that where it, it's a slog and it's depressing, but I don't find that that's the case either. This feels like a... You know, there's there's no yuck yucks in Spartacus, but that movie doesn't feel like a slog and it's depressing. You know what I mean? Sometimes this is a historical epic, and ultimately, I think I'm trying to think how to say some of these things without sounding just utterly ridiculous. Like, um, oh gosh, what's his name? the The main guy in Spartacus, Kirk Douglas. Thank you, good lord. You know. I, it's, I don't want to say Kirk Douglas was irrelevant to Spartacus. <laughs> like that, that's just a patently absurd thing to say. But so, part of the what makes that movie amazing is it's the scope, the grandeur, right? And Kirk Douglas obviously helps carry it, but he's he's not the focal point of it, despite it being his top. You know, his you know, it's literally his character's name on the thing, but. The movie it has a life of its own outside of the main protagonist, which is not the case for a lot of movies. So is there a skill to just letting letting the movie breathe around you, essentially? Which is one of the things we talk about is Ridley Scott. That's the way he operates, right? And I think he really gets a lot out of it in this. Yeah, that's a fair so, point. An interesting thing about how this movie was made, you know, he's got the Peter... Um, oh, good Lord, I feel so unprepared. He has this one, uh, a Pietro Scalia, his editor that he uses almost all the time. He did not use a, that uh, that guy for this movie. The person who edited this film, um, I believe it was a woman, was the editor on Memento. So your Guy Pierce thing, I thought it was funny. Um, but 
anyway, so one last question I have for you guys, since you watched it, and I, I don't know that I have an answer to this, but I feel like every time I watch it, it changes. The final shot is him, Balian, and um, Sibylla, Sibylla, sorry, Sibylla. They, they're kind of looking out, watching Richard Lionheart and the Crusaders go back to the Holy Land, or go to the Holy Land. And, you know, they've refused the, the invitation, basically, to go. But the final shot is them riding the direction of the Crusaders, like leaving their town and going that way. Are they just out for a Sunday ride, and that's the final shot? Or is are they going back to the Holy Land to try to, you know, roll the dice again, have another chance at at, at whatever it is that, that they want to do to live their life? What do you guys think? I interpret it as Sunday ride. That's I'm, I'm a Sunday ride guy, too. Because if, if they turn around and go back, it totally destroys that last little exchange that he has with King Richard. Like the whole point is that he's given that up and that he's just the blacksmith now. I think yeah. that might just be a coincidental framing that they happen to be kind of writing the same way. I, I interpret that as a Sunday ride. Yeah. I mean, all logic... They don't, have, they don't have, like, packs. They don't have... They're not dressed for battle. I mean, she's got her little frilly coat on, and, you know, they stop by his wife's... His first wife's grave and all that. So, I, yeah. I think that's just, just I, I just the everything points to that, the sole exception of the direction they're writing and everything's intentional. I mean, it's a film with editing. So like they if they really wanted to, they could have made it the other way around. You know what I mean? They could have been riding the other way. So I don't know. Just something to think about. But I agree with you. It does kind of undermine the final point of the movie. So there you go. Jeff, you missed oh. my closing argument. I saw you had to take a phone call. I'm going to have to perform it for you again at the office. Sorry. My mom called twice. She hardly ever calls twice. I had to make sure everything was okay. Oh, Are yeah. If a parent calls you, yes, it's something is wrong. That's the first thing. What's wrong? Yeah. She wanted to know if I had bought a spirit shirt for my daughter from school because <laughs> it was the last day to buy them on the website. So, <laughs> I have got a spirit shirt for my daughter, so we, we got that covered. That's out of the way. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Bob. Well, Steve, I think a fantastic argument that you've made. I am anxious now to hear what Jeff has to say about Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. Jeff, please take it away. Yeah, so starting to wonder if going second wasn't the good was the best decision here. Steve's lawyer skills uh, might have given him an advantage here, but I will present my case nonetheless. Um, so War of the Worlds, Steven Spielberg. Okay, so. War of the Worlds is a movie that I think I've talked before about how that era of Spielberg from 93 to 2005 is, is sort of the apex of his career. And obviously there's been good stuff before and after, but I think that sort of whole decade plus just really, really was him at another level. And I think War of the Worlds kind of ending that period is the perfect encapsulation of everything that Steven Spielberg is good at um and also some of the things that he's not quite as good at uh mainly number one just to get it out of the way something we've talked about a theme all season long steven spielberg and his portrayal of women um the only i don't i don't count dakota fanning in this sense because he treats child actors differently um and we'll get to that in a little bit but the only like grown adult woman in this movie is the nagging ex-wife of Ray, who's literally pregnant in the movie and just just like just stands there and her only purpose is to 
harp on Ray for the Tom Cruise character for being the deadbeat dad that he is. And it's like, it just, yeah, there was no, no, it could, it, yeah, anyway, that we've talked about that enough all season, but I just wanted to get that out of the way because everything else in this movie uh, is damn near perfect. It's one of my top three Spielberg movies. And, and the more I watch it, the more it creeps up there near the top. So the, just everything again that he does well is there's nothing necessarily new in this movie for him, but it's everything that he's known for everything that he has done just absolutely perfected. And I don't think he's reached this high sense. Now, something that sort of permeates the film is something that he always has been really good at, right? Is there's this, this Spielberg is the quintessential American director, right? This, it's just, there's, there's a little bit of Americana in, in Spielberg. And one of the things, and it is, we've kind of already hit on that with, with uh, kingdom of heaven, but the time frame being also in 2005, there's a, there's a definite post 11, post nine 11 streak running through this movie. So much so to the point that when the daughter first uh, is encountering some explosions from the aliens, she screams out, is it the terrorist? And that's something that not a huge deal, not a huge line. They don't really like, you know, they don't all, oh, they don't really dive into, Oh, it could be terrorists or whatever. They, they just kind of let that line go. But I think if it's written today, I don't think they write that line. And I don't think she says it. Not that again, not that it's a huge deal, but, but that is, but, but that's also a very, there is a very important aspect of that because, you know, post nine 11, like that was, that was the first time in most people's lifetimes at the, at, at the time, most of our generations that we really felt vulnerable as Americans. And that vulnerability translated into a lot of his movies at this time, a lot of other people's movies in this time as well. But I think one of, one of those aspects is just that, that feeling of, of, of that lack of safety that we had. And that is a big aspect of not, not of, of, of War of the Worlds and the aliens coming because not only this sort of lack of safety, but that we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know why it's happening. We don't know what's going on as it's happening. That, that sort of chaos feeling that we all, like for those of us that lived through 9 of 11, you, 9-11, you remember that, what, what that chaos was like. What's happening? Why is this happening? Who, who did this? What, what's going on? And, and it's just constant and there's no answers coming. You know, they eventually did, but it, it, that first like 24 hours was just insanely chaos. And that's, that's, that was almost fully, um, fully replayed here in war of the worlds. And so that, that's, that's a big piece of it that, that can't be ignored. You can, with kingdom of heaven, you can take that. I think you can take that sort of context away um, from that movie and it might serve it better actually, as, as you guys are kind of saying, but I don't think, it's possible to kind of take that context away from War of the Worlds. I think that's a very important and intentional aspect of the film, and I think it actually comes across really well. Uh, but, you know, another thing, just going into beyond that, you know, the, the Spielberg we have, what else is he good at, right? Family dynamics, child actors, okay? The, the, from the immediate get-go, we have the family dynamics at play, right? We start out with Ray at work, he leaves work, the ex-wife is, is over at his house dropping off the kids. It's his weekend with the kids. We immediately get all the stuff like the wife is nagging him to do this and do that, blah, blah, blah. And then 
we establish the relationship with the kids. You know, the the daughter is the super smart one. She still kind of looks at him like a dad, but but not not quite the way she should. Right? That she she sees him as a dad, but not as a father figure. You know, and then the son is completely in his rebellious phase and does not at all like or respect his father at this point in his life. And what do we, we get, we get bits and pieces of, of, of how it got to this point, but ultimately being that we can say that Ray is an irresponsible deadbeat dad. That's, that's pretty clear, which is a little bit against type for Spielberg. I'm sorry uh, for, for Tom Cruise, but, uh, and you know, Spielberg, even though we talked about, you know, with the, the, the issues he maybe has with, with women, sometimes he doesn't, most of the families he had were, were somewhat, you know, functional, but this one is a really dysfunctional relationship between the parent and the kids there. And uh, at least up to this point, I should say, for the families, because I think he's kind of delved into that more as as he's gone on. Um, so, you know, that is that is covered. And then we talk about child actors. We, we've talked about how Steven Spielberg is probably, not only has he revolutionized the way child, children are portrayed on screen, but that he has, um, he's probably, no, there's probably nobody better at it in the history of film at directing child actors and dakota fanning's performance in this movie is fantastic i mean she the 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 feeling of dread that she has when they're when they're in the van and they're trying to escape the city the feeling of dread that she has in that scene is inescapable and it's it's insane you can see you know when he, he has those shots where he lines up perfectly right her face she's she's intently looking forward because she knows i don't want to look back but you can see behind the the explosions happening, the laser beams from the tripod and everything. And it's this, she knows it's happening, but she can't look back. And then they're looking back and the, Ray and, and her brother are looking back and they're, they're going crazy and, and they're telling her, don't look back, don't look back. And, and it's, it's just very intense. And throughout the movie, Dakota Fanning, Tom Cruise, right, at the time, absolute biggest movie star on the planet. And this little girl, I don't know how, her character was 10. I'm not sure how old she was at the time, but couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 years old. Just going toe-to-toe with him and just absolutely nails it, every scene. And that is, you know, we've seen Spielberg do that throughout his career. And that is absolutely one of one of the things that I, I highly credit to Dakota Fanning having a lot of talent, but also Spielberg harnessing that talent appropriately and, and making it work in the context of the film. And it absolutely does. Um, you know, we talk about, visual aspects right of of what spielberg does so well and the the initial scene when the after the lightning storm and everyone's gathered around the hole in the street and ray runs up and everyone's like what is that this whole thing like the lightning hit i saw it hit here a bunch of times and and they're like what's going on and then all of a sudden they can feel the ground moving and it starts vibrating and then it starts cracking and everyone's backing away. And then the tripod rises from the screen. Like that is an absolutely just seminal moment. And it is as impactful, as amazing of a scene within the context of its movie as the T-Rex breakout in Jurassic Park. And the only reason that that scene is not seen in all of, of filmography in as high regard is because we already have the T-Rex scene from Jurassic Park. Uh, but if we didn't, that would be just as, as, as equally of an amazing and impactful scene in, in cinema history and probably still should be because it's still just as amazing. Um, and then right after that, right they're 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 getting in they're they're leaving town. They go into the van 
and we've talked before, I've mentioned this, even going back to the very first episode uh, with Duel, Steven Spielberg, one of his most famous abilities is the shots of cars, you know, going whether it's a chase scene or going on highways, his, his just ability to pan around and have these just amazing shots of people driving in cars. And he does not do a better one in his whole career before or since than this scene in War of the Worlds when they are leaving in the van. I remember at the in the theater just being amazed at this scene, right? And it helps that they have the technology that they can kind of play with things a little bit that you couldn't do around the time of, say, Duel, because they can they can actually go into the car and out of it and sort of phase in and through it with special effects that they couldn't do at that time. Um, so that's an advantage for sure, but he takes advantage of it and he uses it. And it's an absolutely phenomenal scene. They're outside the car. There's, there's, they're panning around the car as it's, as it's weaving through all these parked cars and traffic, then they're inside the car and then it's a, it's a tight shot and you feel that intensity and you see, um, Dakota fanning and what, what's going on with her and, and what's going on in the background. And then they're back out of the car again and we see all the chaos around them and everything's, everything's broken. Nothing's going on. And they're, they're alone. They're the only ones that are driving in this car and everyone's wondering what's happening. And I mean, it's just, it's one long shot. It's just phenomenal. It is just phenomenal. And they're, they're again, he's the master of that shot and it is never better than it is, uh, in this movie. And, um, so it, it's it, it, that whole sort of sequence there from when we get the first tripods into where they're leaving is just just phenomenal. We get to then we get to a little little bit of a reprieve here when they get to the mom's house in in Boston, and the you start to get this feeling of of what's going on here with with this family dynamic where Ray as the dad is finally starting to understand that he has to be the adult in the room here and he doesn't know if he's capable and it's it's a struggle for him he's trying to make him peanut butter sandwiches because he didn't know what they didn't know how to make food he didn't have any food and he gets mad because they don't want it they're not hungry he doesn't understand how to interact with his children and the this whole situation he knows now this is his first glimpse of what do i do now because there's no going back. This, they can't go back to where they came from. That was the tripods, right? They're running away from that. There's no going back to the tripods, you know, literally, but then metaphorically to where they were before all this stuff happened. And so that's his first little taste of that world. What do I do now? I don't know. I have to figure this out. And like Tom Cruise plays this perfectly. And again, Spielberg with his just ability to have these sort of family dynamics that, that can push these stories along. Again, plays that that perfectly and then you go that they're then you go back to visuals right where they're they're in the basement that night and there's the scene where they're all sleeping ray's sleeping on the chair and then this perfectly framed shot of ray on the chair and then behind him is one of those crawl space windows from the basement and there's this just ray of light coming in everything else is pitch black and dark but there's this ray of light coming in and you know almost like like a, in close in close encounters when you uh when the the door was shut and the little kid is about to open it and you can see the lights coming from all around the doors and you know you're like don't open the door because you know something's going on out there um and it's the same kind of deal right where you see it and you're like oh my god something's going on out the window but he doesn't show us he just lets it sit there and then we start hearing noises. Ray wakes up and like this whole thing, 
we don't see what's happening. We do not see what's happening the entire time. All we see is there's noises, there's wind, there's all this kind of stuff. We don't know what's going on. And they go in and they they hide it. They don't even have time to take their flashlights. They have to go and they have to hide in this this little bunker within the basement. And it's pitch black. And that's all we see until we wake up the next morning. And then we find out because Ray walks outside. It was a freaking jet airplane that crashed and narrowly missed destroying their entire house that they were in. And this sort of encapsulates what Spielberg, I think, does so well with this movie that that he has shown throughout his career. Every single scene, every single shot in this movie is teased perfectly to perfection where he he just lets it sit. Not too long, not too short, but he lets it sit just enough and then we don't see whatever it is that's happening until the character does. And it just, it really puts us into the place of the characters. And it's so masterfully done, right? Down to the uh, the scene with Dakota Fanning. She's She's got she's to pee. They pull over to the side of the road and they go to the river and all of a sudden she sees a body and it's like, oh my God. And you know that this is her and her mind. You can see it. This is the first time she's seen a dead body. Oh my God. And then just a cascade of dead bodies comes down the river and the music in the background is absolutely perfect almost like a horror movie um just this this sort of piercing music that just builds and builds once starting when we first see the first body and then as you start seeing all the other ones come through just continues to build and it's perfect and it's a john williams score and i had to look it up to see if it was him because it was so different but it so perfectly fits the mood of this movie um and then you know, you're going back to just there's so many great visuals in this film, like when they get to the uh, they get to the ferry scene and they're they're, cry- they're trying to go onto the ferry. They make it on the ferry and then they slowly um, almost like a almost King Kong like right where they turn around and you see the trees moving and they're like, oh, my God, what's going on? And there's the, the birds are flying everywhere and the birds are flying at night. And everyone's like, why is it, Why are the birds flying at night? And they turn around and they see them. And then one of the few times in the movie he doesn't give a character's perspective and he pulls back and he shows the um, tripods just looking down at the ferry and it's just like, oh my God, we're totally fucked. <laughs> and uh, it gives me chills. I've, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie and so many of these scenes give me chills every time because then it's just one right after another because right after that, they're on the ferry and then the ferry captain He's trying to pull away as fast as he can to get away from these three tripods over here. And then he looks down underwater and then you see these lights and it's like, oh my God. And then this just, you get that really, then you get the tight character perspective and you see the scale of these things because the head of the tripod comes out of the water and looks right at them. And it's like, oh my God, you know, these things are so big and they're, they're everywhere. We can't escape them. We can't escape anything. And they this incredible scene where the the boat gets broken and they almost get drowned. They get almost get pulled under by this car and they swim to the shore. And then it comes to one of just the, for my money, one of the absolute most incredibly intense and amazing scenes in movie history. The scene with Tim Robbins in the basement, this entire scene. I remember seeing this in the theater, like, you know, you'll be on your edge of the seat is, is what, you know, you hear so many times in poll quotes and stuff. This one literally had me on the edge of my seat and still does when I watch it. And that's that's so so much a part of what makes Spielberg so good. and What makes this movie such a 
a quintessential thing of why he's so good because no matter how many times I see it, I still get these feelings, right? I still get, you know, my stomach drops when I see that light under the water and this scene I'm on, I know it's going to happen and it's so tense every time. And yet it's still interspersed with these moments, right? Where Ray's trying to, to put Rachel, his daughter to bed. And she's like, sing me a lullaby. And he's like, I don't know any lullabies. And cause he's a shitty dad. And then he, he asks her what this, this ribbon that she's been carrying around is. And she's like, oh, I won this ribbon for a contest, blah, blah, blah. And he takes it and he just kind of starts crying. And he's like, and you know right there that he finally gets it, right? That it's gone. It's over. The, the world, whether she survives, he survives, whoever survives, that world is gone. And this innocence, this, this innocence that she had when she won this this ribbon for something seemingly inconsequential, she can't go back there. And that's gone. His daughter is forever changed. And you don't have to be a parent to have that feeling of knowing, like, you know, not just for somebody else, but just knowing this can't go back. This cannot be undone. This is never, we are never going to be the same because of this. And you can see that pain on his face. And then that gets entered. But then he's like, okay, I still have to protect her. I still have to make sure she survives because if there's any chance that that she can have anything normal in life she has to get through this we all do which segues into this moment of him having to go and murder this guy to keep his daughter safe and again we don't see it happen we see he focuses he, he puts the blindfold over rachel and he says just whatever you do don't take this blindfold off and all we see is her and this blindfold and we hear some muffled noises and it's just an amazing, such an incredibly intense scene and amazing. And and it goes on from there and, you know, gets even just more intense with when they finally get taken by the tripods. And then it's that we realize, oh, my God, they're harvesting these humans. And it's just every shot, every shot. I haven't got I, I completely even didn't talk about yet the, the carjack scene right where they're when they finally leave the van and how intense that is as they're slowly people they go into this crowd of people and they're realizing oh my god these people have a working car and it's they're this isn't a zombie movie but they feel like zombies they jump on the car they're smashing their heads in the car they're pounding their fists on it they're just like this guy's trying to peel open the windshield with his bare hands and the his cutting his hands and the blood is squirting all over the windshield and so much of the stuff is so much darker and more intense than we're used to from Spielberg at this time and even since. And it's, you know, I think some people might not like that because they may not come to, to Spielberg for that. And that's totally fine. But, you know, I think it's good when when filmmakers sort of come out of their shell a little bit, come out of their comfort zone. And I think that's what he did a little bit with this movie. But while also kind of using a lot of the things that he's learned throughout his career to, to make it sort of a smooth transition right and just that that whole sort of basement scene really with tim robbins i just that was that whole thing was gut-wrenching and so intense and then you, know, you finally get to the end and it just if there's maybe a complaint with the movie i suppose it could be the spielbergified ending right we've talked about these we know we know what this is you know but so the the these are again when i said at the beginning for better and for worse like all these things i mentioned have been for better the, the for worse things are his continued lack of, of good representation of women on screen. And then also his inability to have any sort of like any sort of uh, 
like actual consequences essentially in the ending, right? Because at one point there's a very pivotal scene where the son is just telling his dad, you have to let me go. You have to let me go. He wants to go fight with the army against these, these aliens. So the dad finally just raised finally just says, okay. And he leaves. And then immediately there's this massive explosion that happens right in the direction that the sun went, right? No way the guy survives. No way. And, uh, and then they get back to the, you know, the, the, all the aliens are dead. They get back and then all of a sudden, oh, son survived. And he went, he was at the mom's house just waiting for him, you know, and it's like, ah, man, that even at the time that kind of irked me a little bit, you know, there, there was just, it was just classic Spielberg, right? Good guys win. Everybody survives. We're moving forward. Right. So that's, you know, I'll go ahead and throw that out there as, as an easy sort of, um, easy way to detract the film, but just everything else besides those two small aspects was just absolutely perfect. And I think some of the best work that Spielberg has ever done. So there it is. I think, I think that, uh, it's a thank you, great summary, both of you. Um, I think you did not mention the one thing that I think is the very best thing about this. I don't think you mentioned it, um, is the sound design, the sound that these tripods make. Yeah, this is like, horrifying. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, this absolutely chilling. It's this low, it's almost sounds like a kind of like a well, I compare you know, it's interesting. I compare it to like the T-Rex roar in Jurassic Park. Uh, it's it's a similar it's not the same kind of sound, but it evokes that same kind of fear. Um the uh the sequence It's a, it's of, a warning to the characters. Yes, the sequence with the fairy tripod kind of comes up it's looking and it just makes a and it makes this really really loud and that's when people panic and they and people start to freak out i think it's the sound of this movie uh, that is really really effective that spielberg uh, this is definitely the movie where i feel like spielberg pulls out all the toys and he does so he has fun making this movie and he he pulls out all the gadgets and all the technology that filmmaking has cultivated through the years, and he puts all of it to use uh, right here in in this particular he even, movie. He even got a Tom Cruise run in there. He got a Tom <laughs> Cruise run, exactly, and that's like the thing, yeah, that you got to go for. Um, I uh, you know what I think uh, you talked about post nine eleven. I think the image um, I conjure most for this movie is the tripods when they hit humans it disintegrates them and so they turn uh, basically into ash and this is really horrific moment that i think very much evokes 9-11 because when we think of 9-11 I mean, there's a lot of things that we that we think of when we think of 9-11 but i i often think of these primarily black and white photographs of these people covered in ash um and we know probably probably human remains and all kinds of things that they were covered in that day that he basically gets covered in like this human cremains and, and, and ash, and he goes home. Uh, he, he rushes home, and his son's like, what is all over you? Like, what's that dust all over you? And he kind of goes and looks in the mirror, and he kind of has like a complete freak out, and he sort of like, you know, kinda, like dry heaves into a sink and is like running water through his hair to try and get it all off of him. I think that's, I think the images like that in particular, like you said, Jeff, I think that, Kingdom of Heaven, I think it's better to probably divorce it a little bit from the time and place. I think it, for our generation, for anyone who lived through 9-11, it is impossible for me to divorce those images from 
how we felt. That is a post. It is a post 9-11 image and you cannot escape from that. Yeah, I think the context is vital to the movie. I mean, it works as a fun, fun. Lots of people get killed by aliens, but, you know, it's a it's a summer blockbuster. It works on that level if you're if you take it out of the context of 9-11. But I think it unlike Kingdom of Heaven, which works best divorced from the time in which it was made, this one, it's vital to place it in the context. It adds a weight to it that isn't there if you just look at it in the summer blockbuster vein. Yeah. Question. What are your thoughts on the the casting of Tom Cruise, the quintessential, you know, smiling movie star as, you know, a Bayonne dock worker who's a shitty dad? I mean, do you think that was was did it work overall um, or or this whole time? You're like, this is Tom Cruise. He, why? How is he a shitty dad? He seems like, an well, the movie Tom Cruise, he seems like an OK guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that was. Because Spielberg had sort of a little dalliance with Tom Cruise at this time, right? Because he had made Minority Report together just a few um, few years before, which he wasn't a bad dad in Minority Report because uh, we didn't really see him with the kid. But after the kid, he became a bad person, essentially. Um, so kind of interesting. But I do think it works because I think um, playing against type and sort of subverting the expectation of Tom Cruise is going to be the cool, fun guy and everything always goes right for him. You know, I, I think playing against that and having him be the sort of deadbeat, because because then it makes it, because we're going in wanting Tom Cruise to be that guy, we're going to be rooting for him that whole time to have that journey. And I think that he does sort of have it, because you don't instantly dislike him. Like, if you have a, another actor in there who is more easily hateable, if you will, um, you know, then immediately he's, he's shown as such a deadbeat from the, from the get go that you're just gonna, you're not going to root for him at all. So having that sort of built in expectation of Tom Cruise is a good guy. We want to root for him. I think helps turn that from just a shitty person that we're not going to want to, we're not going to want to succeed or have any sort of good character or somebody that we're actually rooting for to change throughout the movie. So I do think that that, I do think that was actually intentional. I do think it works. I would say that the only thing that I think it hurts a little bit is maybe this is, you know, Tom Cruise, he had done Mission Impossible movies before this, but like he really like began to dedicate much of his life to the Mission Impossible movies um, in the years since. So maybe this wasn't as much of the case then. It's hard for me to see him as vulnerable because he is such an action star that we think, like, he can just kick ass whenever he wants to. And, it, and like we said, he gets a Tom Cruise run in here. I mean, he, he get you know, he's able to run at superhuman speeds away from explosions. Um, so that that's the only thing that maybe – I think Tom Cruise does fine in this movie. I think that Tom Cruise, in a very weird way, is actually kind of a, a, a great actor. I think that he has kind of an interesting range that he shows uh, – certainly for someone who's like of a movie star caliber. Um, but I think that that's the only thing that when I watch this movie is just we're so used to seeing Tom Cruise as the Mission Impossible and Maverick and these kind of movies where he can just kick ass whenever he wants to, Jack Reacher. And here he's not like that. And so it's it's hard to see him as vulnerable. But again, I'm maybe looking... 
I just named a bunch of movies that have come out since this. I was movie. just gonna so say may, maybe that isn't that wasn't as much if, the case at this time. If you think about the context, I think this movie might have been kind of at the tipping point in his career where he was just like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go and dedicate to Mission Impossible and stop trying to to be this like a serious actor almost. Not that he's not a serious actor, but you know what I mean, like go for the Academy Award type stuff because he went. Like Magnolia was in 1999. That was his best performance, I think, of his career. Um, and then in 2001 was Minority Report. He, again, that was another role where he showed a lot of vulnerability, I thought. And then, you know, this movie a few years later. So I think around this time, he was a little bit more sort of in that mold than he was just the pure action star. Because I think he'd only done two Mission Impossibles at this point. Um, and that Mission Impossible 2 was not very successful, so I don't know if people thought that it was really going to be a series, and then he kind of willed it into existence. So I think in this context, at this time, I, I think he was it was a little bit more um, in his wheelhouse than what we would say now. Like, if he was trying to play Vulnerable Dad in 2023, it would feel much more weird after essentially 20 years of Fast and the Furious, Top Gun, Jack Reacher movies. Well, I disagree. I think he did a fantastic job playing a, a vulnerable character. I think he could play it today, but we have a, if you... I didn't say he could play it. I said it would it would feel weirder to the audience, is what I was trying to get across. I, I guess, but you still haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, in which he plays an emotionally vulnerable person at several points, so... Weird for it. Uh, <laughs> he does, I mean, I, I say it just kind of joking, because Jeff will not see that movie, even though it's maybe the best movie that came out last year. Uh, or two, God, was that two years ago? No, it was last year. Was anyway, awesome. yeah, I, I'll push back even on what you said, Nate. I, I think, I think he does a fantastic job in this playing someone that you can just feel. Well, you used a perfect example, Jeff. Um, the, the scene in the house with the peanut butter sandwich and all that, like you can feel he's like fucking panicking, like melting down inside. Like, what am I going to do? I don't, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And now I have to take care of these two. Like, and it's all coming home. I, I don't know. I To me, it landed really, really well. And, and especially because in that scene, he's trying to put on, through the vein, through the guise of his character, he's trying to put on some of that Tom Cruise charm, right? When he's trying yeah. to sell when he's like making sandwich the sandwich yeah. to these kids, and it's not working. And so that kind of feeds into the character again and, and how he's able to part of that little meltdown that he has where he throws the sandwich at the, or the, the bread at the window and it sticks. And then he sees his own reflection in there as the, the bread is, is slowly winding down the window. You know I mean? It's yeah. I definitely think uh, that it was good, but uh, again, I want to clear, like, I, I think he's great in this movie. I just think that Tom Cruise generally is a harder guy for me to see as sort of vulnerable just because now I associate him so closely with the mission impossible stuff. I, I, I do think, I, think he's very, I, I do think yeah, he's very I, good at this movie. I definitely see your point. I just, I, it worked for me. So what do you, I, I may just not like Tim Robbins as an actor, but I, his guy seems too manic. His character. It, it seems like he's almost over, overacting. Uh, I never, I just found that whole guy, that whole scene and his character in particular, like the scene itself works, especially with Tom Cruise's reaction and all that. But that character to me, just, I find more off putting than, than scary. 
I know he's not supposed to be scary like Michael Myers is scary, but like the situation is scary because it's unpredictable. You don't know what this guy's going to do because he's, you know, he's kind of fucked up. But I just, I find myself more annoyed with the character um, and really Tim Robbins acting of it. So I don't really know if I have a question. I think I'm just venting. But do you guys think Tim Robbins was a good choice for that? Do you like his performance? Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from on that. I, I think that it was intentionally sort of like a caricature type thing. And I remember even at the time kind of feeling a little bit of what you're, what you're describing. Um, oddly enough, I think that 18 years later now, seeing the state of our country and how so many people are these days, his, his character is more realistic now than it did then. Um, but, uh, which is, which is odd, but it's, yeah, it's, um, there was a little bit of, of weirdness there. And I think that was intentional. That, that doesn't mean that it necessarily has to work just because it's intentional. But I, I do think that that was, was what he was trying to go for. And it was, yeah, maybe just a, a tad over the line there. I mean, I think Tim Robbins is a great actor, right? Shawshank Redemption, who doesn't like that movie? But um, it, it's, yeah, there, I don't know who you would have gotten to, to be in that role that would have um, could have maybe... I don't know, maybe like Gary Oldman or something might be might be an interesting choice. Ray Stevenson. Like I think Ray Stevenson could have been the freaking Tom Cruise character for that matter. I don't know if he could do the well, he's dead now, but I don't know if he could have handled the running and all that. But to me, he's the perfect level of seems like it could be deadbeat, but also seems like a good hearted guy ultimately. But I can see I that. Um I have a question. So, like Steve, I don't know how much of a question this is. I'm just going to say something. Roger Ebert, our favorite Roger Ebert, notoriously did not did like not know, this movie. I was waiting for somebody to bring this up. Because he, he liked he, Kingdom of Heaven and did not He like liked it. Kingdom of Heaven. He said Kingdom of Heaven right in the first paragraph. Theatrical he says, cut. He says, the theatrical cut, he says, is better than Gladiator. He comes right out and says that. Um, he notoriously does not like War of the Worlds. He says that it is incredibly clunky. He says that he does not like the design. He really rants. So I remember watching, I, and I've, I've read the written review. I remember watching on the show uh, when it was Ebert and uh, Rover, Richard Rover, um, that they kind of got into it because Richard Rover was like, are you really telling me that you're an average moviegoer and you've got your $15 and you're going to go buy a ticket that someone should buy it because the, the movie that was out of the time uh, with this was The Longest Yard with Adam Sandler. He's like, you're really – and he, Ebert gave that a thumbs up. And he's like, you're really telling me that the average moviegoer who wants to escape into a movie that The Longest Yard is, is going to be a better overall movie-going experience for them than this movie. The and Ebert, he's like, yes, that is what I'm saying. I think these tripods are clunky. I think the alien design is unimaginative. And he like really did not like this movie. And so I didn't know if you had a response to because it, it is what's interesting about the movie is that it, it takes the HD Wells, it takes like that machine design, and instead of updating it, it kind of just does that exact sort of alien thing but puts it into a modern world. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting stylistic choice. So I guess I'm asking about that stylistic choice mixed with like Ebert also kind of is critical of that as well. What do you think about that? Yeah, because if I mean I think if if the idea that they're playing with is because they talked about it in the movie, right? They put these things in here before there were even people here, right? They put these things in the ground. So if you're gonna if if you're an alien race and you're gonna do that, does it matter 
what time that you, um, you know, what, what the time frame is and which you actually come above, like, what does that, that's not going to have any sort of reflection on what the design is. The design is the design, right? Because the aliens don't care when they bring it down. So whether it was, you know, 1950s or 40s or whatever, whenever the book was published, whether it was that, whether it was that time or whether it was 2005, the actual design doesn't matter. And it, it, I think that's kind of where they're coming from on why they, they kept it that way. I don't have anything to back that up, but if I had to guess, that'd probably be why. Um, yeah, it does seem really weird, like the way Ebert disliked that movie, because I, I've said before, he's my absolute favorite writer of all time, and I love the Raj, but there are some definite inflection points in movies um, that we've liked or that I have liked that we have differed on. He and I like, I just, like, I, like I know I, I'm in person, but um, it, it's, it's, it's really odd, especially cause you know, this is a movie that it's not like, Oh, I liked the war of the worlds. Like I've loved this movie. I have such high regard. So to see him where normally we're, we're sort of on the same page on most of the things. So it's, it's it is kind of weird when you see a critic that you like and respect that totally dislikes a movie, but every, you know, every, not everyone has to like every movie the same. I just, I have to read his last paragraph of this. <laughs> so it's just, he's so great. Here's what he says. All of this is just a way of leading up to the gut reaction I had all through the film. I do not like the tripods. I do not like the way they look, the way they are employed, the way they attack, the way they are vulnerable, or the reasons they are here. A planet that harbors intelligent and subtle ideas for science fiction movies is invaded in this film by an ungainly erector set. And that's the end of the review. <laughs> um, so he just, he really, really disliked. He also goes on this whole rant about, he does a little bit of his written review about like, how did humans building foundations and sewer lines and subway tunnels not ever run into, like, how did the, these things go undetected? I think for me, there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief that can kind of get me through a movie without thinking much about that. I think maybe he was being a little nitpicky about stuff like that. Um, but it is kind of funny that it comes, like, right up in the middle of, like, a major intersection in New Jersey. It's like, that is a little weird that they didn't hit that thing one time when they were putting down, like, a water line or something. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, we don't know how far been, down it was. Yeah, I mean, it could have been, I don't know, 100 feet underground, which wouldn't be that much, but it's probably lower than most sewer systems go, if I had to guess. So, you know, that's not... Yeah, but like you yeah, said, he, from the suspension of disbelief there, I mean, you know, like, oh, so... Is it easy? It's easy to believe that we can recreate dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> the, the alien civilization, because you're you're accepting the conceit that there's an alien civilization that would put these things in here. What you're not accepting is that we wouldn't have encountered them before. Like, come on, let's let's you know have a little internal consistency, right? So yeah, I do think that's that's a little nitpicky as well. I love I love Roger Ebert, R.I.P. Raj, but uh, yeah, that's strong disagree on that review. So, I anyway, love... I, unless you guys have any further questions, I mean, I think we're ready for, for our judge's decree here. I just had one question. Well, it's not really a question. I mean, it's sort of a question. What do you think of the alien designs themselves? So I think the tripods themselves are awesome. I think the actual aliens, when we see them in the basement, that it feels like that's the most CGI they use in the movie. And I feel like it has not aged well. So... Agreed. I, 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 think, th I think the alien design was kind of weird. I think it was mostly... Um, actually kind of reminded me a little bit of Independence Day, oddly enough. I, 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 yeah, I've same. always thought it was kind of a ripoff of Independence and, Day. Yeah. And I think the it was a functional appearance for them because they wanted to show 
I think they could maybe predict a little bit why this whole tripod reaction. They wanted to show why they were tripod. And they're like, hey, these aliens are tripods. That's why they made the machines tripods, just like they are. Get it? Because we see? all drive around in mechs every day. I'm I pedal cars. That's naturally. right. Yeah. So, but I, I do think that was a big reason why they showed the aliens there. Because they could have just have it be another, um, you know, video camera snake thing that came in. And I think it would have been better, frankly. That's the one part in the tail end of that movie that I started to dislike was when the aliens themselves were in there. It's such a the movie has such a good horror feel during a lot of this, right? You can really feel the terror, like you were saying. Um, but yeah. then when you see them, it's just like, well, son of a bitch, these aren't that. I mean, and I also think they were trying to get a, get across the idea of because you have to sell the fact that the aliens are drinking the water and that's what kills them. And so, like, there's the scene where in that scene, there's the part where the one of the aliens like encounters the bicycle and he takes the wheel and he like spins it. And then it falls off the, the, the wall and then he kind of pushes it just like a human would, right? When you, something falls off the wall and you get angry at it and you like push it away or something. And, and so I think they're trying to like introduce this, this sort of human like curiosity. Cause then they even show them as they're like the, this water that's dripping down into that. They show them like licking up the water and drinking it. So I think that's another aspect of what they want, why they wanted to show Cause otherwise it'd be like, well, we never even see the aliens get out of the ships. Well, how did they drink the water? And so I think they, so that, that whole bit with the aliens actually coming out, I think was just almost entirely functional just so they can say here, you know, showing, not telling, but showing this is why they're tripods because the aliens themselves are tripods and this is where they drink the water. And this is what all the aliens have been doing. And that's why they all are going to drink the water. I mean, they eat the humans. We're like 75% water. Maybe they that's get hepatitis. Point. That's a good point. I don't know. Tuberculosis. The aliens all divide a tuberculosis. At least it's better yeah. than signs in which water kills them, yet they're literally walking around in the fucking atmosphere, which is made of fucking water. They'd be melting instantly. Oh, that movie. I love that or, movie. Tell the reveal. Or, or Batman Begins, where they have the machine that evaporates all water in the vicinity, but doesn't hurt humans, which are 75% water. Hollywood doesn't understand water. They don't care. I'm on Ebert's side. Yeah. They don't care. So anyway, all right, here we go, Nate. Can we get a drum roll? Are you ready to have the capability? Well, I have my my own deep thoughts about this. So first of all, thank you both for um, two really great arguments. Oh, there was a, that was more of like a, that was a rim shot, not a drum roll. That was a rim shot. That was not a drum roll. So that just made it sound like I was joking when I said that they both like had a great summary. <laughs> All right. Um, so thank you, Brandon. That was a great sound effect. Um, no, I think you you both did a fantastic job. First of all, I think you I think you both picked great movies for this. Um, I what I, what I struggled with this week while I was rewatching this movies was this was we're making this decision about this whole season. And while we do this week by week, it was impossible for me to not like look at these other films we've watched and think about their whole body of work. I think that ultimately go ahead, Jeff, just real quick. Should we, should maybe like, obviously not discuss heavily, but just throw in some other movies if we want to, to give this kind of final discussion or do we even need to, to well, I'm going to talk about a couple other movies. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, I think ultimately what we are asking ourselves is why do we go to the movies? 
I think we are in complete agreement that both of these filmmakers are great artists who have made great art and have created a, a an incredible body of work that has uh, spoken to humankind and has inspired us and made us think uh, in, in a myriad of different ways. I think that these movies are both very representative. These two movies for this week are very representative of the things that these two filmmakers do best. I think that what Ridley Scott does best is he does the big idea. I'm going. I want you to think. That's that's why we go into a Ridley Scott movie is we want to think. We want to um, contemplate a big idea about human nature or the cosmos or whatever it is. I think what Steven Spielberg does best is he wants to he wants the moviegoer to escape. He wants to take you to another place, and you want to escape and be in this whole other world, and you want to, uh, you know, be inspired. Magic is the word that we sort of associate with 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 Steven Spielberg. And it's interesting because I think, really, before I get into this, I think both those filmmakers also do that. You know, I think they can play each of those games. I think Spielberg also makes movies that talk about big ideas, and I think. Um, Ridley Scott does things that in some of these movies, the shot we were talking about earlier from Kingdom of Heaven, that I think is just like pure movie magic when, uh, you know, all the fire, uh, you know, fireballs fire out, uh, you know, from the slingshot thing um, at the city. I think it's absolutely incredible. But in asking myself that and looking at these two movies and looking at their whole body of work, I'm ultimately posed with those question of Ridley Scott, big questions, Steven Spielberg, escapism. Which of those filmmakers does those things better? And my final decision will be Steven Spielberg's escapism is superior yes. to Ridley Scott's questions. And let me, let me, let me, and let me, because I have a few examples I can really bring up here. One of the things, I think these two films are both great. In a weird way, probably, and I'm maybe even breaking the rules a little bit, like maybe I actually kind of like Kingdom of Heaven a little bit more. Exactly. I knew but, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that Ed, Edward Norton's performance, but that's like really more about his performance. I just absolutely love that. I think it's absolutely incredible. Um, I think there's a couple things that Spielberg does that are that's really interesting. When I think about their whole body of work, I think of what the middle schoolers these days call mid, uh, which is not necessarily middle, but almost like kind of bad. Um, or forgettable. And when I think about these two filmmakers, Spielberg does this thing that Ridley Scott, in my opinion, does not do, that that escapism and that magic, he pulls moments like that in movies that otherwise are forgettable. And I'm not sure that Ridley Scott asks those big questions in a way in his forgettable movies. If I may interject here, just I was having this discussion because I was telling my wife about the show before we recorded, and the way I described it, almost exactly what you're saying, is that I think Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg's ceiling is exactly as high as the other. I think Ridley Scott's floor is much lower than Spielberg's. Yes. The two moments that I thought of that I, that I thought were really interesting that really came into my mind um, – a couple weeks ago when we talked about the movie The Terminal, Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, and I had that very teary-eyed thing where I was talking about the end of The Terminal, that's a forgettable movie. Like that – I mean we kind of we kind of agreed with that. That, that. that that movie 
is not that could be erased from Spielberg's catalog and it doesn't change his filmography at all. The fact that at the end of that movie, he can still pull this moment that to me is one of the most magical moments at the movies basically makes me ponder what it means to be an American and what this person's American dream is. He can pull that out of a, frankly, kind of one of his more forgettable movies. Another movie that I thought that I think of a lot, and it's interesting because, like, I, I would almost say that this is one of his worst films, certainly one of his most forgettable. We have not even, it's so forgettable, I don't think we've talked about it one time this entire season, is the movie War Horse, okay? War Horse for me is a very forgettable film. It's an extremely forgettable film. We did talk about it once. We okay, we might, have, we might have mentioned it once. There is a moment in War Horse where they're in this really tall grass, like almost like these wheat stalks, and there's horses, these lines of horses. They're about to charge into battle on, on horseback. And you see these men mount the horses and they come out of this tall grass. It is a visually stunning sequence. And then they charge out of this grass and it is this incredible battle sequence. And then it cuts away to this single horse without, with a no rider running and the horse is all blooding and it's running through the woods and you know that they're riding. Like it's moments like that that are just pure movie magic that he still can pull and for me, like, that movie is very close to his floor. That is just a very forgettable movie. Whereas, when we look at some of the movies that we've seen from Ridley Scott this year, like, I go to something like White Squall, which I think is maybe, like, the worst of his movies that we watched, in my opinion. And that floor is counselor. really low. And oh, well, counselor. counselor. Yeah, I'd yeah, rather well, watch White Squall again than Counselor. Yeah, to, to be fair, Counselor and 1941 are both, like, deliberately bad. Like, we, you know, that's we, true. We, 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 that was we literally the worst sad. of the worst week. So, okay. yeah. So, excusing that worst of the worst week, like, when I think of something like White Squall, there's just not anything like that where, okay, the thing he does is he asks the big questions. There's no moments where he's pulling out these big questions in one of his floor kind of movies. Spielberg, even in his floor movies, is still delivering that magic in just in, in that kind of way that I don't think Ridley Scott is up there. Jeff, I think that you said it exactly. I think these filmmaker ceilings are the same. I think that what they do, escapism versus big questions, they're doing it at the same level. But I just feel like Spielberg's overall catalog is stronger because his floor is so much higher than Ridley Scott's floor. There it is. There it is. There it is. I, I honestly can't Spielberg. disagree with that analysis. I, I, I feel like I've kind of come to the same conclusion as we as this season has gone on. I do think you've you've tweaked the rules a little bit because I feel like in your heart, you want to say kingdom of heaven won this matchup. I, I do. I, it's, it's a weird thing. I, I, well, here's what, here's what I want to say too. I think that I'm also trying to not bias myself that I've just watched kingdom of heaven for the True. first time. And I, I thought that Steve, and I think that's a great point. Then I did try to reflect back on when I watched War of the Worlds for the first time, and that feeling that and that emotive quality was very much equal, if not greater, than when I watched Kingdom of Heaven the first time. War of the Worlds, when we came out of the theater, I mean, Steve, I mean, Steve, you and I, I remember a conversation we had. I mean, almost 20 years ago, I yeah. literally remember us sitting Fair. on a car having a conversation. I mean, that's how memorable that moment and that emotion was for me. So I have to imagine. 
in 2005, that was pretty strong for me. It's a very strong feeling I have having seen Kingdom of Heaven this week, but I think those emotions are probably about the same. So yeah, right now, if you're holding the gun to my head at, you know, as in middle age, I probably liked Kingdom of Heaven a little bit more, but <laughs> I just think that probably if I'd seen these movies at the same time, I really would have been, like if I'd never seen War of the Worlds and I just watched it, probably would have been blown away by it this week as well. And And so. to your credit, you said last week, you know, how much you liked War of the Worlds and how you were going to try to go with Kingdom of Heaven with an open mind. So it sure seems like yeah. you did, you know? No, and, I, I, I mean, I cannot explain. Brandon does not you. agree. Brandon thinks you don't want to show favoritism to your family. And <laughs> that's why you're siding with me. And this is all. <laughs> he had that one. Oh, you were ready. He all season. He was ready for the decision yeah. against Kingdom of Heaven. And there it was. I, yeah, well, so I, I mean, again, I, I agree with you, Steve, that like probably if I were grading this like any other week, I might have leaned Kingdom of Heaven. But if I'm picking the winner for the whole season, which ultimately is what it came down to, I have to acknowledge that escapism of Steven Spielberg, who I consider to be one of, if not, I think it's not at all crazy to suggest that he is maybe the greatest storyteller of his generation. It's hard for me to not anoint him when he's compared to any filmmaker of his generation. I don't think there's anyone working now that has better harnessed the movie-making craft to tell a story than Steven Spielberg. I think the only guy who, preview for season two, is Martin Scorsese. But, even still... His movies are not, and particularly early on, were not as designed to be as, like, commercial. You look at, like, mass-produced art that is also of a very high quality. It's like, Spielberg is doing that and has done that through his life probably better than anyone. I mean, to look at movies like Jurassic Park and Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, these are phenomenal pieces. I mean, these are master crafts of filmmaking that also appeal to broad, popular audiences. And I just think that it's inescapable that he, you know, that, that, that he, not that he was necessarily going to win this season, because honestly, we've all said we kind of thought he was going to run away with it, and he didn't. But it comes down to a tie. That, to me, is what's going to kind of be the tiebreaker for stuff like that. Well, and, and I think if I may bring in a, a bit of a, a comparison, like a metaphor, I think. so. We're, we're all football fans here and being all from Kansas City, right? Patrick Mahomes, best quarterback that's ever lived. But there's, there's an argument that people have tried to make, um, specifically Dan Orlovsky. I'm just going to call him out on this podcast. In case you're listening, Dan Orlovsky, you can come defend yourself if you'd like. But um, where he, last season specifically, he tried to say, you know, well, Joe Burrow is, is the best pure passer in the NFL even if Patrick Mahomes is the better quarterback or better player type of thing, right? So is there maybe an argument to be made that Steven Spielberg, because you even said it, Steven Spielberg is the master storyteller of our generation, right? Is he maybe the best storyteller, but then you could make an argument that maybe Martin Scorsese is a better director, right? From a, um, for, for whatever that term means. And we don't have to necessarily get into that now, but just sort of a, sort of, is that even possible to make as a distinction? Yeah, no, absolutely. Which I, think I, mean, there, I think I think you could. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's filmmakers that there's filmmakers I like more than Spielberg. I think there's filmmakers that they're the the level of their execution 
is almost at kind of like a genius level. I think David Fincher's that way. I think in some moments, Quentin Tarantino's kind of that way. There are filmmakers um, that are far more interesting than Spielberg. Like, I will, yes. as much as I love Spielberg, I will admit that he's not super interesting. Um, because we talked about it, Ridley Scott creams him in the department of asking big questions and things. Spielberg yeah. just doesn't really do that. He can, like you said, but that's just not in his wheelhouse. And he, but he does everything that he does, and he does it so well. He does it so well, and he does it for a mass audience. And he does it in a way that you can say he's not interesting, but if you're not, you know, you, you cannot sit here and honestly say that something like E.T. didn't inspire interesting things. I mean, show, I mean, we talked about it when we talked about the, like, the entire, the whole 80s aesthetic that has been happening for the last 10 years, that is like the, that is the child of E.T. We don't get Stranger Things, we don't get Wonder Woman 1984, we don't get any of this stuff. I mean, Spielberg in that way kind of almost like invented the culture of the '80s with one movie. I mean that. I mean that's. It's like that kind of power of 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 pop culture power. Just there's not any other filmmaker that has that. I agree. There's other filmmakers that are maybe are better at their craft, maybe have a better body of work if you're looking at it from a purely cinematic point of view. But no one has moved culture in the film world like he has the only other one that i can think of that sort of reaches that same level of like mass appeal but technical expertise is christopher nolan and his body of work is not long enough yet to compare in, in a realistic way but even from the moment like once you when you go from memento to batman begins to the prestige and you see the sort of range of nolan and what he's done it kind of hits those marks um and when i say like you know, interesting, obviously, yeah, you know, that's uh, that's just kind of an easy way to describe what we were talking about. But, you know, something like Interstellar that Christopher Nolan did talking about time travel and black holes and all these sorts of things, you know, Spielberg doesn't go there. He doesn't. That, that, that's that's not his wheelhouse. And that's fine. But, you know, that's that's just kind of to illustrate the point of what, what we're talking about with that, that sort of thing. But I think Nolan's the closest that I've seen that I can I, think. It's interesting you say his name because really if I were to think about it, if I were to think of the perfect combination between Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg, I think it is Christopher Nolan right now. Because I point. think he is a guy that he makes the big movies, he moves culture, he inspires others, but he's also asking these big questions in all of his movies. And I think that he's kind of the modern version of the of the, the filmmaker that's doing that. He's kind of taking a little bit of Spielberg and a little bit of, of Ridley Scott in that sense. Yeah, I mean, he just released Oppenheimer, which is essentially his like Schindler's List type movie, you know, and he very well could win the Oscar for it, just like Spielberg did. So that'd be interesting to see play out. But I feel like we're getting too much into some of the, the content for next week because we are going to have this. This was the last head to head episode, but we do have one more show for you that we're going to we're going to record next week. We're just kind of wrap things up. We're going to talk about stuff like we've just been sort of teasing out now and talking about just kind of final thoughts on the directors. We're going to do some short hits on um, some movies that we haven't talked about um, that, you know, like movies like uh, artificial intelligence. That's a movie that, uh, you know, Spielberg movie that is very divisive amongst many fans that we didn't really talk about. Didn't quite fit into any of the categories. You know, we mentioned Indiana Jones for uh, um, the, um, Harrison Ford part for the Freaky Friday episode last week, but we didn't quite delve into that. So you know, some, some, there are some things still to cover uh, as as we uh, 
wrap things up. But I think that's that's what we're gonna do next week. Give you a nice little bow on the season. Give our final thoughts. Talk about some interesting things that we sort of learned along the way on this season. And uh, yeah, throw in some some ones that we just brief snippets on ones we haven't talked about. So we might also hear from our producer Brandon next week. He has said that's that true. He's that's kind true. Of give we, some I of his... we are going to do that. Give been... his rundown of whether we got it right or wrong throughout. Yeah, because honestly, he's been. I don't know how he's been so quiet except for the sound effects. Because... It's a skill. Yeah, he's. I think he is a bright guy that probably has a lot of really good opinions about these, and he has sat there silently and listened to all of our opinions. So we're going to give him some time. He was pushing through. the kingdom of heaven big time. Yeah, he really was pushing kingdom of heaven. Um, so we'll we'll see what he has to say next week. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, with that, we'll wrap up the show this week. Steven Spielberg is your winner from season one for Duel of the Greats, and next week we also. Um, probably give us a little bit of a tease for season two about which directors we're going to cover for them. So um, yeah, come back next week and we'll uh, wrap up this season with a nice little bow for you until then. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.